Good morning. Welcome. If you don't know me, my name is Mikey, and I'm the director of the kids' ministry here at Emmanuel Church. just want to say thank you to Hannah and the worship team for leading us in song this morning. So today, I get to be down here in what we sometimes call Big Church. But it is my pleasure, and I'm excited to talk to you about Acts. We're going to continue our sermon series in the book of Acts, and we're going to look at chapter 10, verse 1 to 23. But before we read from God's word, let me pray for us. Please join me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, that is sharper than any double-edged sword. So Lord, as we open up your scriptures and we read today, we pray that we would be able to examine our hearts honestly and truthfully, and that your Holy Spirit would guide us and give us wisdom and how we can be transformed and how we can be made more and more in the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that your word would be a blessing to us today, Father, that you would teach us as your children what your will is for our lives, how we can change and how we can treat other people and how we can share the gospel with our friends, our families, and our neighbors around us. And so, Lord, with your blessing today, we, we want to read your word and we not just want to forget it, Father, like somebody who forgets their face in a mirror, but we want to apply it to our lives. And so we ask for your help in that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I mentioned, if you guys have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to open it up, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 10. And we're going to look at the first 23 verses. So today I'm calling this Visions and Visitations. And so last week we looked at Saul's conversion, and I'm going to go ahead and make a little confession. There was some of the scripture that was assigned to me, and it was talking about some of the miracles that Peter had performed. So just so you know, we've kind of switched gears here from talking about Saul, and now we're going to be looking at Peter, just so you guys don't get a little bit lost. So let's go ahead and read starting in verse 1. Now this is called Cornelius' Call for Peter. Now, At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! And Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened up and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill, and eat. 
Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back up to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And the men replied, We have come from Cornelius de Centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so he could hear what you have to say. And then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guest. So this is the passage that we're going to be looking at today. And we're going to break this up into three different scenes and take it in little chunks first. So the first scene we have here is Cornelius' vision. Now, as the scripture tells us, Cornelius was a centurion. It means he was a commander. And not only that, but in an important regiment called the Italian Regiment of the Roman military. And he lived in a place called Caesarea. Now, when I think of centurions, I often think of, you know, those Spartan-looking guys full of armor and, you know, like the giant broom on their heads and things like that. I don't know the name of that helmet. But... In this case, this is happening in his home, and he receives a vision. And what else do we know about Cornelius? We know that he was a God-fearing man. We know that he was well-respected in a Jewish community. And it's important that we remember Cornelius, because next week we're going to talk about what happens in his household. And what happens is that God is going to publicly open the doors to his church, to the Gentile world, which is very important in the book of Acts. As we see things start out in Jerusalem... Right, and go to Judea and Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. And so here is a real breaking point for the Gentile world where the church is able to get involved. The Apostle Peter was present to see this happen. And Jesse had been witness to the opening of the doors to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 and even to the Jews even earlier in Acts chapter 2. So that's the first part. We have this guy named Cornelius. He has a vision. An angel is sent to him. He's like, you need to find this guy, Peter. He has something very important to tell you. Now, scene number two is Peter's vision. Now, this is a pretty great vision. I've never seen anything like this. I don't know if you guys ever have. But meanwhile, God was preparing Peter's heart to minister to the Gentile world. And by I say Gentile, I mean people who are not born Jews. And this would have been a lot of the Roman people in the day, in the early church in first century. Now, God gave a Peter a vision of an assortment of animals. It says four-footed animals. It says reptiles. It says birds. And you're probably wondering, well, okay, what's, what's the importance of this vision? Why are there all these animals on a bed sheet being, coming down from heaven? Well, you see, in the Old Testament, there was a lot of purity laws that the Jews had to follow, particularly around things like food. I mean, just the other day, I was looking for some salt. And we needed kosher salt. I don't know if you guys ever heard of kosher salt before, right? There's a lot of things that are considered kosher and unkosher. So 
at this time, in this place, in the Jewish community, and it still is part of a thing today, there are foods that are considered good to eat, and those are kosher foods. And then there are foods that are unkosher, and you're not supposed to eat. And a lot of these things that were on the sheet were the not good kinds of things to eat. But what is happening in this vision is God is telling Peter to get up, kill, and eat. And what's Peter's first response? He's never eaten non-kosher food before. And he says, no, I'm not going to do this. I've never done this before. Why would I start now? But the voice says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So we're going to dig a little bit more into the meaning of this vision in just a second. But we have one last scene that happens in our scripture today. And scene three is Peter is meeting the messengers. And those messengers are the ones that are sent by Cornelius. Now, after Peter has this vision three times, then Peter heard the Spirit saying that three men were looking for him, and he should go without hesitation. And Peter found Cornelius' two servants and his faithful soldier, and they told Peter of Cornelius' visitation by an angel, and he asked, and they invite Peter to come back with them so they could come and have Peter stay at Cornelius's and speak to his household. But before that happens, Peter invites the men to stay the night, and the next day, Peter followed them back to Caesarea. So we have our scripture here divided in three important scenes. And one of the things that I want to talk about today is our identity in Christ. Now, Peter strongly identified as Jewish, right? He was raised in a Jewish home. Gentiles were a whole other world to him, right? But as he put his faith and trust in Jesus, and as he followed him as a disciple, those were some of the things that he had to kind of leave behind. But that's not a hard thing to do, is it? Right? Peter's vision was repeated three times, and as he's intensely pondering, okay, what do these animals mean? What does this voice mean? What am I supposed to do with this vision? You see, what... God was telling Peter is that he needs to let go of some of the prejudices he has against Gentiles. In the early church, there was a big debate whether you need to be a Jewish person first before you could accept Christ. And Peter struggled with that. And God here is helping him remove some of that prejudice against Gentiles. And saying, look, what I've called clean, don't call it unclean. These Gentiles, they can be welcomed into my family as children of God. Peter needed a drastic message from God to get rid of his prejudices and distinctions among people. Now, we must understand what a Christian identity is and what our identity in Christ is. Our identity in Christ does not depend on our own human distinctions. And once we understand that we are loved and valued by God, not because of our own merit or our own good works, we will also begin to realize and understand that we can't then look down on other people. We have no footing in which to judge them. Second thing I want to talk about is prejudice. Prejudice is an expression of one's insecurities. That's where they stem from. They're things that we feel uncomfortable about, even in our own selves. It's an expression of one's feelings of inferiority or not feeling like you're enough that you're adequate enough or that you're good enough. And so if we don't feel secure in who we are in Jesus, then we turn to those things to feel secure and how we can lift ourselves up over other people and feel like we're superior. We will use human distinctions 
to make us feel important. But we know that our value comes from Jesus. That who we are, who God made us to be, is in Christ. Not in our backgrounds, not in our jobs, not in how much money you make. Not in who your family is. I know none of us here are from royalty. (laughs) Not like British royalty. But in a time, titles mattered, right? Who you came from, how much land you owned, all these kind of things. Today's distinctions are a little bit different, right? We live in a country where many different people come from many different places. But those human distinctions don't make us better than other people. If we fully understand, if we fully surrendered our life to Jesus and we find our identity in him, we will feel secure in that and we will not have a need to raise ourselves up over others. For those who have truly understood and accepted the grace of Jesus Christ, such an idea becomes unthinkable. Now consider the Lord's words to the prophet Samuel. Now the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's from 1 Samuel chapter 16. How much importance do we place on what people wear to church? When we gather to worship, are we focusing on Jesus, or are we looking at everyone's outward appearance? Does it matter what the color of their hair is? Does it matter what their t-shirt says? Does it matter if they're wearing ripped jeans or sandals? Is that important to us, or is the worship of Jesus important to us? Do we come to gather around a person, or do we come to look at each other and say, okay, who who here is, is like me? Because that's what Jesus is saying to Peter, is that Cornelius looks nothing like you, Peter, but I want him in my kingdom. I want him in my family as a child of God. He doesn't look like you, doesn't come from the same background as you, doesn't dress like you, probably doesn't know your language. But Christ is inviting him in. And do we have that same attitude to those who come here to worship with us? I sure hope we do. That's something that we can hope and strive for. When we gather to worship, do we focus on our outward appearance? Does it matter if someone's wearing a hat when they come to worship? Honestly, I don't think it does. But as Christians, we often... We don't want to break those barriers of class or race or creed or those kinds of things in society or even in here because it's convenient for us not to, right? It's more convenient just to keep doing the things we're doing and thinking the things that we're thinking and to be in those habits. To change our thinking and to lose our prejudices is uncomfortable. It's discomforting because it's forcing us to break our habits, We have to self-reflect and think about what habits we have that we need to lose. What kinds of thinking do we have that we need to change? It can be very unsettling, but we must wrestle with what we are uncomfortable with. Because prejudice has no place in our hearts as believers in Christ. We must take that wrestling of our heart and examine ourselves. And make room for those who are not like us. We must confront prejudice when it appears in our church. And we must also confront it when it appears in our society. We must condemn it as Paul did when Peter gave into it. This is what Paul warns us of in Galatians chapter 2. Paul says, I do not set aside 
the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Peter's idea is that you had to follow the Jewish law before you could then accept Jesus. That's wrong thinking, because then what did Jesus die for? When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price. He paid the penalty for our sins. He fulfilled the law. None of God's laws were wiped away, but they were fulfilled in Jesus. And because of that fulfillment, we no longer have to keep these laws of purity. So we can eat things like bacon. We can have clothes made of two different fabrics. Isn't that great? There's a lot of things that we can do. We have freedom in Christ. But in that freedom, let us not judge each other and hold prejudice against one another. But let us welcome each other in into the family of God. Otherwise, Christ died for nothing. Another point I want to make is talking about being diverse, but not being divided. Now, through faith, we are all children of God. That is, everyone has equal access to God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is good news. This is good news for everyone. That we don't have to be born of a certain family. That we don't have to fix ourselves before we come to Jesus. Because we all have equal access to God through faith in Jesus. However, this does not mean that we suddenly just lose our diversity. As I look out among us today, I see people of all different colors. I see people who all dress differently. I see people who can speak different languages. And that's a good thing. God has made each and every one of us. And we are a diverse people. But what it does not mean that God regards our human distinctions as one being greater than the other. Our human distinctions are not like merits in our favor that bring us closer to God. Otherwise, Christ died for nothing. There are no tiers or levels in Christianities. In other words, our faults do not disqualify us from God's grace and mercy. If we had to make ourselves right before coming to Jesus, then none of us would ever get there. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And just as Peter had wrong ideas about Cornelius having to be a, going from a Gentile to a Jew before then hearing about Jesus, this is a good news for all of us, is that when we think of our own faults, the things that we're struggling and working through through our sanctification and transformation, those things don't disqualify us from God's grace through Jesus Christ. That is the good news that we can share with one another, that we celebrate every Sunday, that when we leave here and go through these doors, that you are welcome to come and to meet Jesus. Isn't that what we all want, is for us to have our friends and families and our neighbors to encounter Jesus, as we talked about last week, the Saul and the Damascus Road, to meet him and to know him and then to be transformed by him. There are no tiers or levels in Christianity. There are no second-class Christians. I don't see anybody really in the front row here, but just because you sit in the front doesn't mean you're closer to God, okay? <laughs> We're Baptists, right? Does that mean we all sit in the back row? I think that's one of the things I heard for working in a Baptist church. But just as like sitting in the back row doesn't make you further from God, sitting in the front row doesn't make you any closer. 
There are no second-class Christians, right? We are in the family of God through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. So let us not treat each other like we're somehow first or second class, like we're on an airplane and we're traveling somewhere, and there's a little curtain that we, you know, close, and then the, the economy sits back there, right? But the first class is up here. No, it's not like that, is it? That we all have access to God through Jesus Christ. That we can all come to him for forgiveness through the cross. That we can all know God's love. We must confront prejudice when it appears in our church and society, and we must also recognize what happens in our own lives and those prejudices we have. So if our identity is secure in Christ, then we understand, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This verse is not talking about we suddenly don't have male or female or that our visible distinctions suddenly cease to exist. But what this is talking about is that we can have unity together in Christ Jesus. Even though we are all different, we can gather together around Jesus and be unified in him through his death and resurrection. This verse speaks to the unity we have together in Jesus that none of these human distinctions allow for us to claim superiority over one another. It's easy to feel like we're better than somebody when we come to church or when you're in a community group or wherever you are, just because you're different. And a lot of these things are very subtle and it's hard for us to know unless we examine our heart and examine our minds and our thinking. Peter was an apostle a disciple who walked knew Jesus, who ate the Last Supper with him, and yet he still needed a vision repeated three times before it sunk in, before he realized what he must need to do to change. And so I know I myself need to do the same sort of pondering and deep thinking about what needs to change in my life so that we, even though are diverse, don't need to be divided over personal preferences, but to be united in Jesus. That none of these human distinctions allow us to claim superiority over one another. I'd also like to make a note about religion in the gospel, as we're talking about the good news. Now, despite being Roman, Cornelius was a worshiper of God. It says that in the scripture. That means he was a Jewish convert. Now, there were all kinds of different religions in the Roman Empire. And here we have a centurion, a commander of over a hundred soldiers. He is known and respected by the Jewish community, as it says in verse 22. Cornelius was a devout man who regularly prayed and he gave to the poor. But the story of Cornelius still teaches us that being religious is not enough to save a person. Often some of these prejudices we have about the way that we should look and think and act and dress become a sort of religion for us to feel good feel like that we're doing good things, but we don't earn God's grace and mercy through good works. We surrender our lives to Christ and accept God's grace and mercy. And Cornelius needed to do that too. He still needed to hear the gospel 
and respond to it positively. And you'll get a chance to hear about his response next week as we continue the story. And as we look at Peter and Cornelius, they're not just puppets in this story. God isn't just forcing them to do this and that. Now, we do have these visions and we do have these visitations, but they are what I like to call divine promptings. These visions and divine messages are best called divine promptings because they're incomplete in themselves in that Cornelius had to act on what the message was being given to him, which is to go send the messengers and go get a guy named Peter. Now, it doesn't say in the scripture what's going to happen when that happens, but Cornelius listens and he obeys. He's prompted to do this thing without knowing what the consequences are going to be. He has no idea what message Peter is going to bring. And likewise, Peter has his vision, and then he hears a message talking about these messengers are going to come to your door, and you're going to invite them in. Does Peter know who these people are going to be? Absolutely not. He has no idea what's going to come of this. These divine promptings require human action or reflection. They require obedience. In this scripture, God is revealing his will of desire for Cornelius and Peter, things that he desires for them to do to bring about his plan. But they need to act on it. They need to respond to it. God reveals his will of desire, and Peter and Cornelius are not merely human puppets, but they have to make a choice to respond to God's word that was given to them that day. So which one of us here would make hoops for people to jump through in order to receive Jesus? We often don't think we're doing that, but some of our prejudices can hold us back from sharing the gospel with people we might think are not ready for it, who are not quite there yet. Sometimes we use Christian language like, oh, that person is far from God. But until we put our faith and trust in Jesus and we are saved by grace through that faith, each and every one of us is far from God. None of us, by our own merit, can make ourselves closer to him. We can merely surrender our lives and allow God to bring us into his family. And that was the invitation that Peter would give to Cornelius and the household. Which one of us would gatekeep access to the grace and mercy of God based on some outward appearance, based on their race, based on their class, how much money they make, or based on their background? Maybe you know somebody in your work or friends or your family, someone who's maybe LGBT, and you think, they're not ready yet. But who are we to gatekeep that access to God's grace and mercy? Peter invited the messengers in. And Peter would go, and he would bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul would do that as well. And he would leave the response to the gospel in God's hands. But who are we to say that that person is not ready yet because of their background? Divine promptings. Who in your life is God prompting you to share the good news with? To break a barrier? Something that's uncomfortable? I'm sure you could think of someone. I know I can think of people. 
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that the ground before the cross is level. Father, that each and every one of us has equal access to your grace and mercy. That we all started out like Cornelius, wanting to draw closer to you, but perhaps not knowing how to find you. And Lord, we thank you that your son Jesus came, not for the righteous, but for the sinners. For those who are willing to leave their sin behind, to recognize him as Lord and Savior, and to receive his grace and mercy and eternal life, to believe in his promises. Lord, we thank you that Jesus came as a great physician, not for the healthy, but for the sick. Lord, we thank you that you welcome us into your family as children of God, We thank you, Lord, that you gave your body and your blood as a sacrifice for our sins. And so, Lord, as we commune together today in unity around your son, Jesus, Lord, we pray for peace. We pray for grace and mercy among ourselves as brothers and sisters. And, Lord, we also pray that we would be open and welcoming to those who we still want to invite into your family. And Lord, would you use us to do that? We thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray these things in his powerful name. Amen. So this morning, we're also going to take communion. So I'd like to invite the communion servers to to come forward and to prepare themselves at their stations. Now, as we approach the Lord's table, we bring the table front and center. And we do this as a symbol of Christ as the center of our worship. So in light of our our message today, we want to be unified. And that is what this meal represents, is the one body of Jesus. We take communion to celebrate the wholeness that we have in intimacy with God. And we eat this meal together to remember that we are the one body of Jesus And we break the bread to remember his sacrifice for our sin and brokenness. And we drink the cup to remember his new covenant with us. So we want to celebrate this meal together with thanksgiving for his resurrection and for the hope of his return. Now the Lord's Supper, if you're unfamiliar with this, sometimes called communion, And it was started by Jesus as a meal of remembrance during his last supper with his disciples. And he instructed for us to practice this until his return. So therefore, we invite all believers to partake in this meal. And if anyone who is not a believer, they're invited to observe. But you don't have to participate. So while the worship team plays, I invite you guys to come forward and to receive the elements. And if you can't reach a server, just raise your hand, and Shelly will see where you are, and she'll be able to serve you. So once everyone has been served, we will partake together. So come, you're invited. <laughs> 